You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Good evening, everybody. Please uh, remain standing for the reading of God's Word. And this week's passage is from Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 56. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countrysides, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Antonio. I think my favorite part of that reading was the emphasis on the five. 
the five loaves of barley. I love that. Well, it's so good to be with you all here this evening. For those that, uh, that may not know me, my name is Tim. My wife is Danielle over there, and uh, she's got our three-month-old Silas. But uh, it's, yeah, it's good to be together here this afternoon here at Emmanuel. And um, please be praying for our church in our um, surrounding our uh, facility search. And tonight is a good opportunity for us to gather, to enjoy a meal, and to have a, not only a family meal, but a family, family meeting as well in some ways. So we appreciate your continued prayer along those lines too. You know, there are, our hearts are heavy at the same time with uh, events this week, not only uh, in New York, but then also here in our very own community. And so, would you join me in, in a word of prayer as we go to the only source of good, the only one capable of doing anything about these, these grievous ills. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you lamenting the brokenness of the world. And Father, we lament people and groups that use power, that use hateful messages, murderous actions to cause harm to others. Lord, we cry out against the stirring up of hatred, hatred that is directed against our fellow image bearers. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. Lord, in your mercy, we pray for an end to hateful ideologies. Father, would you comfort families and children, not only in New York, but also in our, in our own community as well. Lord, we lift up our, our local school district. We pray that you would provide wisdom to our district leaders, to those that are caring for our kids and our community. And Father, in the wake of the grievous action on uh, just a couple days ago, Lord, we pray that you would pour out your perfect mercy and healing. Lord, we pray for students, for parents, teachers, the school board, administrations to be able to learn from and move forward together. Lord, show us how to dialogue around matters of race in a healthy way. And Father, we pray for the closing of the education gap in our schools, that every student would have the access to the same opportunities, that we would seek to better understand one another, Lord. We pray for our church, God, and churches like ours to, to enter the fray, to model for this community what engaging on issues such as these can look like. Father, we ask for your wisdom. Jesus, change hearts. Bring justice. Lord, we pray for your power to overcome the evils of this world. Christ, we pray for your redemption of all things and for the truth of your word to meet us in the midst of where we are. Lord Jesus, thank you for this picture and this passage of how you stepped into the boat. Lord, may we hear your words afresh. Take courage in his eye. Don't be afraid. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, the only miracle that is found in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000. Now, certainly attempts have been made to try to minimize the miraculous in Jesus' ministry not only in the feeding of the 5,000, but of walking on water and the like. 
But I can't help but think of a passage like Job 9.10 that reminds us, He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. Last week in Mark 6, 1 through 29, we encountered three instances of what we might call prophets without honor. We saw how Jesus was rejected by those he was most familiar with, Nazareth, his own family. We saw how he then sent out the disciples and prepared them for the rejection that they would face along the way as well. And finally, in that passage, we saw John the Baptist's rejection for speaking truth to power and ultimately costing him his very life. Well, in this passage here, Herod's lavish banquet gives way to a much simpler meal, one of much greater significance, one that would point forward to what Jesus would do in establishing the Lord's Supper, which we will partake in later here this this evening. But yes, even paving the way for the great messianic banquet to come. And so if you haven't already, please turn to Mark 6, verses 30 through 56. This is a text where Mark returns to this key theme of who Jesus is, his uniqueness, his identity. And what we're going to see along the way here is what we might call five pointers that show that Jesus is more than a prophet. Not pointers in the sense of like tips, I guess, but more like five things that point to the reality of who Jesus really is. And it is a text that is filled with drips, with key biblical themes. Maybe you heard some of these even as the text was read. I'll I'll do my best to point out some of those along the way, but it'll probably be barely scratching the surface as to how many there really are. I'm realizing that I I don't have a clock to look at, so this this might be dangerous. Uh, but, uh, but bear with me. That's something, I probably shouldn't say that at the beginning of my message, but oh well. Oh well. First pointer, Jesus' invitation to come away points to his true identity as the giver of rest. The giver of rest. Verses 30 to 32. The apostles, that's a word that means sent, sent out ones, had been empowered by Jesus and sent out on mission. If you think back to the to the previous verses, Mark 6, uh, 6 through 13 or so. And now they come back and report all that it is that they did and said. There's this, this combining of word and deed ministry. I can't help but think about, you know, something like uh, maybe, maybe your organization or something you're a part of does something like this, but in the Army we use something called the After Action Review, A-A-R. Oh, man, another acronym. Who's writing these down, by the way? After Action Review. It basically... Uh, would involve, you know, having a, after a training exercise or something, having the soldiers take a knee. I can still hear it now. All right, soldiers, take a knee. And going through what was supposed to happen, <laughs> what actually happened, and how to do better next time, or how can we improve. And I just love Jesus' care and concern in doing that right here. He brings the disciples back to hear the stories of how God has uniquely used them in caring, not only proclaiming the gospel, but practicing the gospel. And he cares about them enough to debrief and to provide renewal. Jesus recognizes their need for rest and invites them amidst the hurry and the hunger. Did you notice that? The people, the comings and goings, and maybe some growling stomachs, to a quiet place. Now, I don't think this is what inspired the name of the film, 
but now everyone's minds are there, so I'll have to bring you back. That's okay. A quiet place. You know, a better word for this is actually a desolate place. It's the term, it's a term that refers to the wilderness. You might think back to chapter one. This is a key theme in Mark's gospel. The place of the wilderness. And it is an ideal setting for Jesus to provide rest and sustenance, bread, in the wilderness. You know, these first couple of verses remind us of the importance of debriefing and renewal. First of all, debriefing, taking the time to report and to process our experiences. This is a, this is a form of spiritual accountability. I think it is part of, too, what it means for, to live each day as people that will give an account someday. There's a wonderful missions organization in Palmer Lake, Colorado called MTI, Mission Training International. And they not only do pre-field training for those that are preparing to go on the mission field, but also for missionaries coming off of the field, something called DAR, Debrief and Renewal. Side note, missions committee, shameless plug here, this is a wonderful investment for missionaries that are coming back to be able to process together the things that they experienced, and then also to get some rest in a beautiful setting. But that's what Jesus does here, debrief and renewal. These verses also remind us of our need for regular times of rest, of rest, refreshment, and relaxation. Vance Havner said, if you do not come away and rest, you will come apart. If you do not come away and rest, you will come apart. But more than simply taking vacations, I think this text shows the disciples were worn out by the vital kingdom work that proclaiming and practicing that word and deed ministry that they were carrying out. So this should challenge us to consider when was the last time that we were worn out by such kingdom work as sent ones. Perhaps one of the most striking things to me about this, though, is that Jesus says, come with me by yourself. This is rest with Jesus, not rest from Jesus. So even when we rest, let us rest with Jesus, not taking a vacation from the faith that we hold dear, seeking rest and vitality renewal in his arms. Second, Jesus' compassion on the people points to his true identity as the good shepherd. Verses 33 to 34. You know, Christ shows compassion at this point on the crowds that rush to intercept him. He's willing to be interrupted even with this need for rest. And the reason he has compassion on them, as the text says, is that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 34. In the first of many of these biblical themes we'll see along the way, here is an echo of the hope, even back to Numbers chapter 27, the, the, the hope for a successor to Moses Moses knew that he was going to die, that he would not be the one to lead the people out of the wilderness and into the promised land. And so in that setting, Numbers 27, verse 17 says, well, let me back up to verse 15. Moses said to the Lord, may the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. In, a, in the book of Isaiah, God himself would be their shepherd. He is the one that feeds his people. Isaiah 40, verse 11, the sovereign Lord tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And then fast forward to the book of Ezekiel. 
After the failures of Israel's own shepherds and and their return from exile, God promised a prophet in the stream of or similar to David, but even greater than David, who would tend his sheep so that they would dwell securely in the wilderness. Ezekiel 34, verse 23, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. So here is, for Mark, I think Jesus... He's showing how Jesus fulfills both of these roles. Not only the Isaiah notion of the Lord himself being the shepherd, but providing this true David. The good shepherd who provides rest and security in the wilderness. Saying that the people were like sheep without a shepherd also would have been a stunning blow to the religious leaders of the day. He tended his people here by giving them an abundance of teaching. So we'll see next and then an abundance of food. I love that. A couple things for us to consider, though, from these, these few verses. One is being willing to be interrupted, even when we face a deep need for rest. <laughs> there are times when we need to be prepared for ministry, even in the midst of the, when we are exhausted. James 2, 15 and 16 says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Even when we are drained, we have hope to offer. Not only being willing to be interrupted, but also looking to Jesus, he himself who is the true shepherd. He is the good shepherd, as he reminds us in John 10. And in Peter's writings, he uses this magnificent phrase of Jesus as the chief shepherd. Not only should we look to Jesus, the true shepherd, but we are also called to raise up faithful under-shepherds, that is, elders, who have that task of feeding the sheep, of watching over, protecting, caring for, and guiding and guarding the flock. We have an opportunity just in a couple weeks here as we gather for our annual meeting to, to nominate elders to serve in our church. I've been encouraging you now to be praying about and considering who God might be placing on your heart in that way. Well, while the people feast on his teaching here in this, in this magnificent setting, their stomachs begin to growl. I can identify with that a little bit. Uh, maybe you can too. And maybe some of the smells from our dinner might come wafting in here. Just going to warn you ahead of time. But third, Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 points to his true identity as the bread of life. The bread of life. Verses 33 through 44. You know, it's getting late at this point, and the disciples come to Jesus with a need. Here's the third reference to a desolate place that they're in, and they need, the people need to be sent away so that they can find food. But Jesus gives a thought-provoking response here. He says, you give them something to eat. The word you is in the emphatic. You give them something to eat. And I can just picture the disciples doing some uh, quick math here and saying, you know what? It would take 200 denarii, that is eight months of wages, to feed such a crowd. I think there's some echoes here to what Moses says in the wilderness when he says, where can I get meat for all these people? Numbers 11. When the disciples say, are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Well, while the disciples focused on what they didn't have, Jesus focuses on what they do have. Five probably small, round, flat loaves and two small fish. These are meager rations that would have hardly made a dent 
it's a clear picture that this is beyond human resourcefulness. And what happens next in sitting down on green grass, I think, echoes Psalm 23, another biblical theme. This desolate place gives way to green grass as the disciples and as the people are, are, are invited to sit down and to partake. That also coupled with this whole notion of them being like sheep without a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Also, the people sitting down in groups of 50s and 100s pictures the camp of Israel in the Old Testament, the ordered camp of Israel in the wilderness, tribe by tribe. And yes, as Jesus looks up to heaven, as he gives thanks, as he breaks the bread and gives it to the disciples, here is a clear anticipation of the Last Supper, of what he would do. In fact, the sequence is nearly identical in Mark 14, verse 22. Not only that, but Jesus would allow his own body to be broken so that he could feed the multitude. Here is, yes, a foretaste of the messianic banquet to come in God's kingdom. And so through God's miraculous provision of food in the wilderness, we see this happening very much in the same strain as or like the prophets of old. I wish we knew exactly how this, or the mechanics perhaps, maybe that's my mind, maybe that's where your mind goes, and how this multiplication takes place. But what is clear are these, are these biblical echoes. For instance, Elijah with his multiplication of bread in Zarephath. Elisha in 2 Kings 4, 42 through 44. Listen to these, these words. A man came from Baal, Shalashah, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the disciples to eat, or give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men? He, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says, they will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Here is Jesus. Here are signs that he is, yes, even more than a prophet. More than a prophet. And what is the result? A superabundance of food. Unlike the wilderness where the people had only what they needed each day, here is more than they can eat. And 12 baskets full of leftovers match the number of the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew 14, 21 adds, besides women and children to that number, that this is most likely considerably more than 5,000 people that were fed. And so if, as we consider these words, I think it, it's a good reminder for us that when Jesus asks us to do things we don't understand or are beyond our capability, he is there. He meets us in the midst of that. The disciples did not have the resource to feed such a large crowd. And his request was a way of stirring them to trust in him in the midst of this situation. We see also even their obedience to Jesus and what they knew at that point in sitting, having the crowds sit down in these groups of 50s and 100s. Did you notice that? He has the disciples be the ones to have them sit down in these groups, anticipating what is about to take place. And looking up to heaven is what we are called to do when we lack and when we have. Giving thanks in the little 
and in the much. This is a picture of what Jesus asks us to do when we don't understand. And yes, it is a foreshadowing or more, more of a highlighting of who Jesus really is. He is like Moses, but greater. He is like the prophets Elijah and Elisha, but greater. And when the people complained to Moses about what they were getting for food, Moses said, who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Only God can bring about food in the desert. He did it then, and he does it here in the wilderness through Jesus. I think Mark wants us to see that Jesus exercises God's own power. He is the true shepherd, the good shepherd. He uses this, I think, to provide spiritual and physical nourishment. And so it is vital, I think, that we too address physical as well as spiritual needs. The story combines that. Did you notice that? Very much on par with how the disciples had been sent out to both proclaim and practice the gospel. God did not neglect the physical needs of the people in the wilderness, and neither should we as a church. And so as the bread of life, Jesus offered nourishment for the soul and for the body. That's why I, that's why I love innovative ways of addressing holistic needs like, I don't know if you're familiar with that term like this, but transformational community development, for instance, that, that type of work. I could spend the rest of our time just talking about a topic like that, but suffice it to say that we need, I think, this balance of both addressing people's spiritual needs as well as, well as their physical needs, not ignoring one at the expense of the other. Well, John's gospel sheds more light on what takes place here because the people are ready to crown him on the spot. It says that they came, they were ready to come and make him king by force, John 6, verse 15. And so in an attempt to de-escalate, we see what happens next. Jesus walking on the water points to his true identity as the great I am. This word immediately kind of pops up in here, but it's, if you know Mark's gospel, we've seen this a few times along the way. It, it's his kind of fast-paced, action-oriented style that he uses. But Jesus sends the disciples ahead while he goes about dismissing the crowd, kind of dissipating this attempt to try to crown him on the spot. And he goes and spends time communi communing with his father in prayer. He goes up on the mountainside. You know, we've seen a pattern of Jesus doing this along the way. And we've seen how God has used him powerfully in what takes place after that as well. This is no exception. Later that night, this must, Jesus must have spent a considerable amount of time in prayer with his father before what takes place next. But Jesus sees his disciples straining at the oars. Oh man, what an image. Straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Unable to make progress against the wind. Do you know that feeling? It says, he went out to them walking on the lake. We might miss this as we, as we go by, but this, is, I believe, is yet another example of one of these biblical themes that is being echoed here. Job 9, verse 8 says, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Here is Jesus treading on the waves of the sea. And one of the most puzzling things about this passage, perhaps, is the phrase, he was about to pass by them. Does that, did that stick out to you 
as we read through this passage? I know, I know it did to me. It did to our staff when we read it earlier this, this week too. It could be something said from the perspective of the disciples who from their vantage point thought Jesus was going to just make his way right, right on by. But what is more likely happening here is what we could call a theophany. As God passed by Moses at Sinai and gave him a glimpse of his glory, so he does here through Jesus passing by the disciples. Similarly, God passes by Elijah on Mount Horeb to reveal his glory. 1 Kings 19, verses 10 to 12 says, He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. These are Elijah's words. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Here is visible evidence that Jesus is God. He assures them of his presence with them right in the midst of their struggle. This, is, this was light years from their experience. In, I think the text, maybe even to a modern reader like us, maybe a similar idea we would pop into our heads of, it must be a ghost. But his words reassure them, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. That phrase, take courage, echoes that whole notion of be strong and courageous, those same words that are said to, to Joshua, to the people as they prepared to take the land. It is I is literally ego eimi. It is I am. I am. God's divine name. In Exodus 3, when, when the Lord met with Moses at the burning bush, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Jesus does what only God can do and uses God's name to identify himself. Jesus climbs into the boat with them, and the winds die down. I think this is a, a marker to Christ's divine power over the churning and the chaos of the waters. We saw this back to when he calmed the raging sea. He delivers his people through the sea, and his calming presence there with them leads to complete amazement. This is the, the highest form of amazement that we see in, in Mark's gospel, complete amazement. Well, a surprising reason for this complete amazement is what follows. First, not only that did they not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Multiplying the loaves should have been enough to demonstrate Jesus' true identity, same as Jesus walking on the water. But their hearts were hardened to who he really is, his divine nature. Here is a note of the disciples' incomprehension, that is, their spiritual imperception, which Mark, more than any other gospel writer, goes on to emphasize more and more as we go throughout Mark's gospel. We'll see some of those markers along the way. It begins to strike an ominous tone as Jesus 
journeys to the cross. But it is something I think that we can very much identify with. Consider this, though. Not only do we need to spend time communing with our Father in prayer, we all need rest, solitude, and prayer. But our tendency, too, is to strain at the oars, to not recognize Jesus in the midst of our inability to move forward. Oh, we can identify with the the perception of the disciples in in this point. It can feel like at times rowing and making no progress. Maybe you've felt that before. Not going anywhere. Discouragement can set in. But the picture that we're given here is of Jesus who cares for his disciples, who sees their distress and comes to them in their darkest hour. And so he does with us today. Jesus is not disinterested or aloof. He comes into our lives. He speaks words of reassurance and of hope. He says, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. He climbs into the boat with us, and he joins us in the midst of our struggle. And yes, at times our own lack of understanding and our own hard-heartedness can come forward. How often we fail to recognize God as he passes us by. How often we miss his presence and his provision. I think there are similar experiences to our lives when we have been too dense to see the story that he's writing, to see what he is doing. Jesus cares for his disciples. He sees us in our distress, and he comes to us in our darkest hour. Well, when they landed at Gennesaret, people do recognize Jesus as a kind of a contrast there between the disciples who fail to recognize who he really is and then the people that come. Jesus' healing of the sick in Gennesaret points to his true identity as the great physician. One remarkable detail in the story here is that they don't end up where they had originally aimed to go. They had set sail for Bethsaida, and they end up in Gennesaret. They're recognized by the people, again contrasting with the disciples' failure to recognize him, and they begin to bring the sick to him. Some on mats like the paralytic in chapter 2. Convinced that if they can merely touch the edge of his cloak, they will be healed. Do you hear that echo as well? That of the the woman who is healed just in chapter 5 of Mark's gospel. Revealing to us Jesus' power to heal. Flip back to Mark chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. It says simply this. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call righteous, but sinners. You know, if we put together these five pointers, simply the bottom line is this, Jesus Oh, Jesus is the giver of rest. He is the good shepherd, the bread of life, the great I am, and the great physician. He is the giver of rest. Matthew 11, verse 28 reminds us, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. He is the good shepherd. John 10, 
Come to me. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He is the bread of life, John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. He is the great I am, John 8, verse 58. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And yes, he is the great physician, as we just heard in Mark 2, 17. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Church, he meets us in the midst of our, our hurry and our hunger. He meets us in the midst of our wandering and our leadership failures. He meets us in the midst of both our spiritual needs and our physical needs as well. He meets us when we are straining at the oars, making virtually no progress. He meets us in our fears and in our failure to recognize him as he passes by. And yes, he meets us in our yearning to be healed, our yearning to be whole. And what does he call us to do? As the good shepherd, as the bread of life, as the great I am, as the giver of rest, as the great physician, he says, rest. Lie down in green pastures. Feast. Believe. And be healed. Amen, church. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for these powerful markers of your identity, that you give us a glimpse as to who you truly are. And Lord, I pray for our church, all those that are here listening to my voice as well, Lord, those that are weary and burdened, Lord, would you pour out your perfect rest? Thank you for the reminder of the rest that is to come, the rest that is found in you, the, the rest that lies before us as well. Lord Jesus, we praise you for leading us as the good shepherd, for tending to us. Would you find myself and other under-shepherds in your church faithful to that task of tending your flock? Thank you, Lord, for being the bread of life, giving of yourself in love, and how you ultimately went to the cross, Lord Jesus, to provide a feast for a multitude. We praise you, Lord, for the glory that you have shown us, for the words of reassurance that you give us, saying, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Would you meet us in our own fears? Would you meet us in our own struggles? Thank you for climbing into the boat with us, giving us hope. And Lord Jesus, we praise you though that healing is ultimately found in your wings. Help us to take refuge in you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your work in this world. We thank you for your work in this church. We thank you for your work in the lives of each person that is here this afternoon. We pray all this in the precious and matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.